All right, well, my clock is showing 9.30. Hope everyone's had a, a good week, a faithful week, and is anticipating Sunday morning now. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are in week four of six on Sermon on the Mount. But remember, we're actually in the last third of a nine-week series on the life and teaching of Jesus. So we were in Matthew 6 last week looking at the subject of practicing righteousness and avoiding hypocrisy. And I was going to jump right into the subject of rewards because I'm usually a stickler to go in the order uh, of what the Bible is teaching. But as I studied that, I, I just thought there was some background maybe that would be helpful as we get into a difficult subject. And so I'm actually going to jump out of the order of the sermon and go to the end of the sermon, which I think will give us some good context. If you remember, one of the points that I drew out from chapter 6 is that each of us will be motivated by an eternal or temporary reward, but not both. And so the subject of rewards isn't just some ethereal, um, you know, spiritual truth we may not understand, but it's actually meant to motivate us now in our Christian life, which makes it even uh, more incumbent that we, we understand what the Bible is saying. And I do expect maybe some difference of opinion on that subject, and that's fine. And so I think it will be helpful for us to start today with something maybe a little less uh, diverse of opinion and build from there. So hopefully you'll, you'll bear with me in that. Uh, I hope to do it in a way that ties the whole sermon together as well. Remember in the first week I said that there's so many rich uh, truths in the sermon uh, you know, a, a one verse or two verses, you could just go on for weeks. Um, there's just so much packed in there in this sermon by Jesus, um, which is great. You know, we should do that. And yet you have, to, you have to keep coming back and seeing, for some reason, Matthew, particularly as the author, tied all these things together, and Jesus taught these things together. And so there, there are truths that run throughout, and it really helps it to keep in context and see how they fit together. So I'm, I'm hoping to do that. Obviously beyond uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose 600 page book I read on the Sermon on the Mount has been a huge influence, but this particular subject has uh, been really helped by John Piper. So if you ever hear him or read him and find some um, similarities, that's, that's not a coincidence. Let me go ahead and uh, open us up in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, there are so many things here that some will resonate with us, some will kick against us, and, and we'll try to want to undo them. And we pray that we would submit ourselves to your word, and we would seek to understand it, seek to apply it. Help us, even in these very uh, practical things we'll look at today, not think so much about someone else, but about ourselves. May we always be ready to, uh, to invite your discernment, your, your light on our hearts to to find a sin, um, and we're most of all, if, if we are self-deceived in our faith, we pray that that would that would come to light as we look at your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew seven for today, I'll start reading in verse one. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and that with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
knock and it will be open to you. Verse 11, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now what I'm going to present over the next uh, two to three weeks is uh, there are at least three types of God's judgment in the scripture. And I'm not talking about like the chronological judgments at the end of times or anything like that. And certainly there are, there are more types of judgments we could talk about, but we're mostly going to focus on the first one today. I think most of us, when we hear the word judgment, and specifically God's judgment, we think of that ultimate judgment. Uh, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? And that's what the end of the Sermon on the Mount really focuses on. We have five mini parables that talk about that reality. And then we could talk about the discipline of a father over his children. Peter says that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And so we don't want to restrict our understanding of the word judgment to just the first one or some of these verses are really going to throw us. And then I will argue that um, eternal rewards is a type of judgment. We'll talk, look at that more next week. So the first of these um, parables uh, in we just read there in verses uh, 13 and 14. Um, remember last week I said that in practicing righteousness, things like heavenly treasure over earthly treasure, the choices are both binary and obvious. Now that of course assumes you have eyes of faith. And we're gonna see a lot of that today. Binary, obvious choices uh, when we really understand um, reality. So the first thing I'd say is that there are two objectively distinct destinations, right? These two paths, lead, one leads to life, one leads to destruction. That's, that's objectively true. They're, they're binary, they're distinct. Um, and yet, they're, along with that comes two subjective experiences. And that's important, how the objective and the subjective come together. So in your experience, the narrow gate is harder to find, it's harder to enter through this narrow gate. It's, it's going to be a path of hardship. Um, and so it's not just the end. It's not like two people just kind of wander through life. And at the end, we kind of find out where they are. Um, the objective and the subjective go together. And that's very important when we eventually turn to the subject of Christians being judged. Uh, the, the third thing I'd say there is that the, the path and the, and the gate, are the same size in a sense. So it's not like the, the Christian life starts later or the difficulties in Christian life are meant to wait until some level of maturity or the differences come in heaven and we just don't worry about those distinctions now. No, we're, we're to leave our old man outside the gate and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. From the start, there ought to be a distinction between the one who claims to be a child of God and the one who doesn't. One of the difficulties we have is that there are few on that path to life and that we desire to be with the crowd. We desire other people, maybe to enjoy them, maybe to have confirmation that we're doing the right thing. We don't like to stick out. 
but there are a few on that path to life. But Jesus is there, right? That, that's the most important thing is that Jesus is on that path. And to someone whose heart has been changed, he is sufficient. The world must look at us as masochists, that we just enjoy suffering. Not only are we going to choose a path that would, would be, you know, full of hardship, we're going to choose to be loners in a sense, not with the crowd, but we're going we're gonna to have to look harder for that gate. It's going to be harder to find. Everything about our approach to life makes no sense if you don't have eyes of faith. But when you have those eyes of faith, when you can see Jesus, and he is your treasure above everything this world, this world has to offer, it's, it's, a, it's a simple choice. And you run as hard as you can after that real treasure. And I would make the point that our evangelism really should reflect this reality. Uh, there is, there, there's an impulse, and we all feel it, I, I think, if we're honest, is we want Jesus and the gospel to be palatable. We, we want people to accept this message. And, and so the danger is, is we can dilute the message because of what some perceived acceptance might be. Um, we, want, we want the offense of the cross to somehow be lessened so that more people will embrace and, and, and verbally confess Christ. But, but that won't do. Sometimes it might come in the form of, uh, you know, we say, hey, you can keep your vices. Don't worry. God's going to accept you as you are. Come on in. And, and we think that we'll get to those vices later in somebody's uh, maturity. Now, there's a sense in that's true. And yet the demands of Jesus right up front, I mean, in the Beatitudes there in chapter five, um, and then the call to be salt and light, we are going to be a people who are called to suffer, to, to care about others, not ourselves. And so our, our call to evangelism really ought to include, in a winsome way, of course, um, but ought to include the demands that you are going to have to come to God and be willing to give up everything, because that's true salvation. That's, that's what it really means to embrace Christ, not knowing what that will mean on the other side. Um, Keith, so, I was gonna say too, this is Ed. Go ahead, Ed. Um, I forget it was Piper or MacArthur that talked about uh, when we say Jesus saves, what do we mean? What, what are we being saved from? You know, the awfulness of what Christ went through at the cross for us, the, pay, the, the, the price that was paid when we minimize the cost of salvation and you know, we really cheapen the gospel. And, you know, that's um, to dwell on the cross and think about what the cross represents, the price that Jesus had to pay is because of the awfulness of our sin, the debt of our sin. So, yeah, I know yeah. when you're having an initial conversation, sometimes that's hard to, but you can still, you know, point people to the fact that, that, that the cross means something. Jesus had to go through that for a purpose. He's saving you from an awful ending. So. Amen. I remember early, I, I came to faith in the early 90s, and I, there had just been the whole lordship controversy. And, you know, can you take Jesus as Savior only or Lord and Savior? But we take Jesus as a, as a person, right? I mean, we take him all or nothing. Either he's on the throne or he's not. Amen. All right. Well, the second one. If you go to verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so uh, a couple things here. The first one is we're talking about false prophets. So we're not just talking about us versus the world, our worldly neighbors. We're not talking about Christianity versus some other religion, Mormonism or Islam or something. But we're talking about false prophets who come into our church. They appear to be sheep. They're the people we would greet at fellowship time. They're in our small groups. They're in the Sunday school class. Um, and the wolves aren't necessarily those sitting back and observing. Um, they could be teaching Sunday school. They could be leading community group. They could be an elder. Um, this is a very sobering thing, isn't it? That at Spring Meadows, we could have wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, and we can be deceived, right? That if a wolf's in sheep clothing, you don't necessarily immediately know that it's a wolf. That's the whole point, that it, it appears to be a sheep. Um, and yet somehow he says, you, you can get to know them. There's, there's a way to, to distinguish them and to recognize them. I think in 1 John 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So in, in final analysis, John says that it was plain. But at first, that wasn't true, right? There was a time when it was not plain who was with them and who was against them. But something happened, something over time, uh, some situation or whatever. Um, eventually, it became plain. And we're going to talk about this more in a bit. But you know, on the one hand, we can be deceived. On another hand, um, things can happen that can make it recognizable. And I would just mention that um, Hebrews 5, for example, mentions the fact that discernment, the, the, the ability to distinguish good from evil, is a mark of maturity. And it's something that we ought to want to grow in. And that's one thing we, we rely on. And for anyone we look up to in our leaders is, is a mark of maturity is, are those who, who have some power of discernment, Hebrews 5 calls it. And really very close to this is the next part, really a continuation of the same paragraph probably. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown under the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So we, as fallible humans, we can't read hearts, right? So we are left with and called to discern internal truth based on external fruit. That's what we have. And it's, it's good to remember this distinction because it's not the fruit that creates the reality, but reveals it. And so this will be very important when you talk about being judged for works. There's an element there that we need to understand what that judgment is entailing. Judging works isn't per se... Um, I see these works, so therefore I declare you righteous or, or innocent or saved. It's that those that fruit, that work, ends up um, confirming, uh, in, in James 2 language, justifying um, your faith. It, it, it reveals it to be true. Now, clearly, if, if all we can be are fruit inspectors, um, we always are at risk of misidentifying, right? We ultimately don't know. Um, 
but through maturity, through discernment, through patience, through wisdom, through prayer, um, we do our best, um, you know, to look at fruit and, and, and to tie that. I, I, you think of the church discipline process um, and, and think of how careful it is because we know we're fallible. There, there's a whole long process of going to your brother, taking others, going to the elders of the church. And, and through this, we are praying that, that God would work in that heart that appears to be wayward um, or work in the accuser to show that, no, maybe you've gone too far, you've gone too fast, and you need to err on the side of grace here. Um, that's a delicate process that takes maturity and discernment. Um, and ultimately, if there's no repentance, the church excommunicates that person and turns them over to Satan, it says. Now, will that person's eternal destiny lie in our hands as a church? No, of course not. God knows the truth, but that's what we have, right? And so we, we do our best with what we can see, always hopefully being humble about knowing um, that reality. All right, so verse 21. Not everybody says to me, Lord, yeah, go ahead. Excuse me. Um, in Galatians 5.22, um, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and such. Um, one of the things that we as believers can you know, great comfort in is you know, we have the Holy Spirit uh, through the Word of God that, uh, that examines our lives uh, and uh, convicts us when we're not producing fruit, when we're living in sin and there's a pattern. Uh, and there's the danger of quenching the Holy Spirit. So we have that aid to, uh, of, of the Spirit to convict us when we go astray and to bring us back into that uh, lifestyle of living in obedience to God and bearing fruit uh, that pleases Him. Amen. Yeah, and, and that Galatians 5 talks about those who display the works of darkness will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's, again, it's, it's the fruit of where their heart is at, right? Okay, uh, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I think when we're, when we're dealing with hypocrites and those who are not real believers, there's certainly people who are faking it. They know it. They're there for deceptive purposes, nefarious purposes, whatever. Or they just are going to go along because they're enjoying the social aspect or whatever. Guy is chasing a pretty girl in church. Who knows? But then... I, I think this passage really tells us something that's even much more frightening than that, is that there are people that are sincerely self-deceived. They really don't know. It's going to take dying and standing in judgment uh, before Christ to find out that all that they thought was true was, was nothing. It was, it was wineskins. It was, there was no internal reality to it. They had been told to look at their fruit. So here they are, they're looking at their activity, many mighty works. This isn't just a passive person. This is someone who's very active, very zealous. 
Um, <laughs> and that is going to be quite a day when all that, that deception falls and the scales fall from their eyes and they realize that, you know, you, you can't be a salesman to Jesus. You might have a silver tongue, um, so much so that you deceive yourself. Um, and everyone praises you, and no one in their, in their right mind would have ever doubted your faith. And, and on that day, it will be revealed. Jesus is not encumbered by our fallibility. We get it wrong. He will not. And, and there will be no argument um, that you'll be able to, to throw at him. Um, but he will judge rightly with perfect knowledge. Um, and that ought to sober us to the core. Romans 10, 2, Paul talks about the Jews, that their zeal, they, they were zealous, but their zeal was not according to knowledge. In the end, zeal was meaningless. And even more than meaningless, Jesus says here, it's not just their mighty works weren't sufficient or they weren't genuine. In their zeal, in their activity, their mighty works were actually lawless. They were wicked. I think of this, um, I'm often quite impressed by someone like a Jehovah's Witness um, who will stand out for eight hours, accept the ridicule. They know their Bibles very well. They know their theology. They spend hours and hours of their week um, dedicated um, to what they believe to be true. And sometimes I think, how on earth could could they do that and, and, and they don't do it for the truth? And, and I know the truth and I, I can't show an ounce of that. Um, sometimes when I, I talk to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or somebody who's comes to the door or whatever, that type of thing, um, one thing I do try to leave them with is if, if what you're doing is true, what you're teaching is true, what you're doing is awesome. It's to be commended and it humbles me to the core. But if, if what you find out to be um, what you teach is untrue, actually every second, every hour you spend in this activity is increasing judgment on that day. We, we can so, and all of us, again, I don't want to just look at others. All of us can be so fooled by our activity. And it's just the subtle way of thinking that God owes me something. We would never say that word. But there's something that God's going to look at this. Certainly he's, he's going to recognize. Um, won't he be impressed? <laughs> you were used to impressing others. Um, and that's why the honest self-examination is just so crucial. A, a biblical examination. And as Lloyd-Jones says often in his book, only a, a gospel-centered, um, justifying, believing Christian can really take it. It can really go to God with an open self-examination because otherwise we would be crushed. Uh, only knowing that we stand in Christ um, would we ever dare to ask God to examine us. So we don't want to be deceived by busyness, by hyperactivity, even when that's admired by others, especially when that's admired by others. That is the worst case of all to be, is when you're successful at your mighty works that are lawless. The last one, and then we will pause for some questions. Uh, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, 
and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So often, uh, time, whatever happened in 1 John 2, when it became plain, sometimes time reveals truth, just eventually there's, there's a lack of consistency, there's a lack of perseverance. Um, but sometimes it's something that's very active. Some, some, something tests our faith. Peter and others talk about that, the, the testing of our faith and how crucial that is. Some kind of adversity, some kind of suffering comes in our life, and as much as we hate that, and this is, there's certainly no reason we should desire adversity and suffering, but, but the reason with eyes of faith, we ought to be thankful for it um, and be happy when God brings it is because it does reveal the genuineness of our faith. Our faith we're, it's purified by fire. So as much as we may not like waves and floods that could say in your own individual life, some of you have lost your job. Um, we have several who have some serious medical issues going on. There's adversity that hits your life. Maybe a friend doesn't invite you over. Um, you fell out of school. I don't know. You don't get into anything can happen. And it's not necessarily some righteous adversity. You're not necessarily suffering for preaching the gospel. It's just hardship. You're going through the same hardship your Mormon neighbor goes through. And yet through that experience, there can be a revelation of truth. Where is the true faith? How do you respond? And I don't think we should ever assume that we know. It would be very arrogant to assume that we will respond well uh, in adversity. And that can be a great testing of our faith, not only for ourselves, which is important to give us assurance um, and confidence. Yeah, my faith is real. Because I responded that way, that was spontaneous. That, that wasn't something I could just conjure up and plan for. My heart really did say, amen, so be it. I have treasure in heaven. Um, or we might respond really poorly, and hopefully that would frighten us. Why, where did that come from? I did not know that was hiding in the corners of my heart. Thank you, God, for revealing that so I can deal with that. So we, we ourselves are revealed, but also for others. Again, the First John 2 example. At some point, you know, these, in many ways, everything was the same. This house was built in the same way. It endured the same rains, the same floods, the same winds. And yet, in the end, the difference was the foundation. You, you could not necessarily see that from above. It's like the, the sower and the seeds. The same sower, same seed, but it's thrown on different ground. And you don't know what type of ground lies underneath. Um, you know, until the sun comes, until the thorns come out, something happens to reveal uh, what's true. Notice that the distinction here is specifically in who does the words of Christ. They both hear them. So again, we're not talking about irreligious people. We're probably talking about people in the church who, who, who hear and, and give some kind of confession to it, some kind of delight in hearing the word. There are people who are hard-hearted, hard-soiled, who don't even want to hear it. But it seems like he's more talking about people who 
would be so obvious, at least up front. I think of James 1, he talks about be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Uh, Romans 2, it's not the hearers of the law who are right before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And so we've been talking about practicing righteousness. Sometimes in our zeal for justification by faith and to be gospel-centered, we can unwittingly downplay the importance of doing God's word. Um, and, and in this case, it's, it's the distinction. Um, and in James and in Romans, it, there, there is a distinction um, through a judgment, as it were, is discerning the truth, looking uh, at our obedience to God's word. And so I want to pause there. I have two of my own questions, and then um, if it, you want to bring any other comments, uh, questions up till now. Um, so back when I talked about false prophets, wolves coming in sheep's clothing, how do we recognize uh, those wolves while not crushing weak but genuine sheep? So as I've said, we, we don't necessarily know, right? We, we are doing the best we have with fruit that we have. Um, but there's certainly a point where we're going to go too far and we're, we're going to be these, we're going to be just focused on others and not even ourselves. And we'll kind of get to that in the beginning of chapter seven, when he says, um, don't judge others lest you be judged. And, and this follows from that. So that there's obviously an extreme we need to be aware of. There's a wrong way of doing this, but how, how do we try to practice this and look out for wolves? And yet, Romans 14, we don't want to go to a weak brother. We don't, want to, we don't want to crush the soul of a true believer because they're going to find us lording over them um, and accusing them of being a wolf. And, well, I'll just pause with that one. Let's deal with that first. Any experiences, any thoughts you have of things we need to be careful of in our zeal to, uh, to be fruit inspectors? I, I wanted to share this thought that, you know, when he says that you will know them by their fruit, uh, I think there is the idea of time. You know, it's, you're not going to recognize them right away. So when we think of time, we also can uh, think of the idea of investing in them as a brother or sister, you know, as we would other brothers and sisters. But, over time, the fruit will reveal. And even if we get hurt or something at the end of it, you know, it was really not our time. It was the Lord's working as in me, and I invested in them, and then we figured out later on over time that, you know, the fruit wasn't right. So, I mean, all glory to God and leave the judgment on God. But I think there is the idea that we're still supposed to invest in it. It's only time that will tell what the fruit is. That is an awesome point. It's not like you're just sitting back waiting, taking notes. You are going to go invest yourself in that person's life and really get to know them. You don't just see them on a Sunday morning or even in a small group. Maybe you have to get one-on-one and, and ask what's going on. That, that is excellent. Anyone else? Oh, Keith, this is Ed. I, I think that's why the Lord, you know, provides Matthew 18 for us because in the rare occurrences where we've had to exercise discipline, when you go to a brother or a sister the first time and then you take someone else with you and you see the hardness of heart, the unwillingness to repent, um, 
there's a wisdom in that process. Um, and it, it's always a heartbreaking thing to see when, when you see someone that, are that is so resolute in their sin and unwilling to repent. Um, but always be tender. And also take wise counsel from the outside. We had a situation years and years ago where someone was struggling with drugs. No longer use this as years ago at Spring Meadows. And uh, we tried to give this gentleman you know, every grace to, to, to turn around. And there was another member of our church that was very involved had in his past had been involved with Narcotics Anonymous. And he pointed out, he said, this person is not showing any signs. And I know because I've seen this happen again and again. So um, that, that wisdom of, you know, being reticent to judge, but also be aware that when you've gone and made the entreaty once, twice, three times, that, that, uh, that, uh, person's heart is not repenting and it is a heartbreaking experience to see that and you always pray that somewhere down the road that uh, they will repent but, you know to be used with discernment and uh, i'm very thankful through the years that god has been gracious that that, that has happened rarely at spring meadows mm. and do you find it helpful that you have multiple elders yeah the plurality of elders the accountability you know because someone can always see something that, that you don't see and, and that, that um, you know, the, the, the force of having that backup of knowing that your, your brother's in agreement with you about a situation, that's, that's so important. Mm -hmm. Like you said, we don't want to crush the, the weak sheep. We don't want to, um, you know, be, be too fast in any kind of judgment. The, the, the purpose, you know, what it says in Isaiah about Jesus, not <clears throat> crushing the, the wick or you know, the, the tenderness the Lord has, that you give every every chance for someone to repent. Mm. Yeah, that, that multiple accountability is important. Hey, Keith, it's Mark. Uh, you know, I, I really liked what you said about fruit inspectors, and I think we really need to remember that the church is full of sinners. And we, we are going to be sinning against other people and, and love forgives a multitude of sins. And, you know, I've had people come up to me and this is one of the consequences of being in leadership and explain to me how I sinned against them, you know, and, and rather than giving a defense, I just, man, I fall to my knees and ask for forgiveness. But, you know, you have people who want to look at these verses and take it to the extreme, like you were saying, becoming food inspectors and, and on the other hand, you know, you have people like you were talking about a second ago that struggle with assurance. They don't, they're inspecting their own fruit. And, you know, and I think, I think from time to time, and I, I think this is why this lesson is valuable. We really need to be our own fruit inspector and, and, and seek that sense of assurance. But, um, you know, anyways, I just wanted to, people to realize, you know, you're sitting in a, with a group of sinners every time you go to church, you know, and, and uh, it, uh, we are all going to rub each other the wrong way at some time or another. And it's mm. something to think about. Yeah. 
imagine we can talk about the the attitude you take when you come to your brother that you're concerned with, right? Does it come as as a concern or as condemnation? Do they really, can they see and believe that you love them? Do you love them? Are you worried about some mechanics in the church versus loving souls? Um, yeah, not lording it over them, even if you're in a position of authority. Um, so much about that. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Um, elders, don't lord over those entrusted to your care. Um, that would be very easy to do. All right, the second question, and it is related. So, and we talked about this a couple years ago when we went through the um, Westminster Confession on the subjects of perseverance and assurance, but I, I see another tension here. So, and, and I kind of mentioned it. So I think the Bible does defend the fact that when you find your life in obedience, that is, that does help you with your assurance. Because if, if we believe that Jesus' grace continues after our initial belief, that he does work in our heart and work in our life, and we are being sanctified, growing in our ability to understand truth and apprehend it and live it out, we ought to see a maturity in our life, right? We ought to see a, a putting to death of sin over time. Certainly not perfectly. Certainly we have bad patches. But there is a level where our obedience feeds into our assurance. And yet we have this great danger that you could be looking to your works and your so-called obedience and be self-deceived. So are there any things that we can think about that would help us between that tension? Uh, Keith, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the neat things is the testimony of, of the saints who have gone before. Um, uh, my mind kind of went through uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, um, but uh, it's the hall of sinners who are saved by faith and uh, um, and how they grew in their faith, although they struggled, you know, David and, and Abraham and, uh, and the other saints, but uh, they were fallible men just like, uh, just like we are, but uh, it is through their, uh, struggles and yet repenting and coming back to the Lord that uh, we have their testament uh, to give us assurance that uh, there there is that tension. You, you, there are going to be a time where we will falter and we'll disobey, but do we come back to the Lord? Did we uh, repent of our sins and return to him? Um, This is Guanan here. Um, I was thinking we realize that the wolves lean on their works, right, to find their salvation, and that's wrong. And but that's the same with those who are struggling with a lack of assurance. They're also Look, well, they're, it's the opposite, I suppose. They're looking at their works for assurance. And so I think with both those errors or problems, where we go is to the cross. Um, that's where our salvation is seen and accomplished. And so I think with the wolves, we, we take them there. You're, you're leaning too much on your works. 
um, to the the person that's struggling with uh, assurance, you take him to the cross and show the same thing. Hmm. Remember in, when I was teaching through First John, right? I think it's chapter three. He, he kind of presents both of these right there. He's like, if we are struggling, um, re remember God knows our hearts. I mean, he knows everything and we're going to be safe. We are safe in the arms of Christ. Don't worry about it. And then he turns around right, said, right around and says, but if we're, you know, if we're, if we're doing good works, we have confidence that he's in us. And so I think that tension will always be there. Yeah, if, if someone is thinking that their work today is what's going to earn salvation, that person needs the cross. That, you know, you, you pour grace on them. Um, get them out of looking at themselves in a wrong way. And then you'll have the rich young ruler who says, I've met all your commandments. And Jesus overwhelms him with the depths, the true depths of the law um, to drive him to Christ, right? The, the, the law was our tutor to drive us to Christ so we could be justified by faith. And so, again, that takes discernment and maturity to know when, where is someone's heart and, and to use the appropriate truth from the scriptures in that moment. And obviously go to others as well. Any last comments? And then I just want to kind of tee up next week. Uh, Keith, uh, the passage in Philippians, I think, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, for it is God who is at work in you to do unto, to do unto will for his good pleasure. So there is... Yeah, uh, uh, we are commanded to to obey and to and to uh, seek a fruit in our lives, but uh, understanding that it is because of who we are in in Christ that we're able to do that, and it's God's grace who who sanctifies us, uh, as well as uh, having uh, saved us. Mm. All right, well, I've got a few slides here. We won't have time to go through them. That's fine, because it was more to tee up next week, and I'll, I'll cover them next week. But um, just to try to tie this to where I'm going a little bit, um, some of the verses that talk about this ultimate judgment, of this, this judging between heaven and hell. You know, truly say, whoever hears these words sent me is eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, those binary choices. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Right, that we're going to know who can see and who's blind. It's this binary choice. And yet, if you know the other verses in John, that might seem confusing because elsewhere in John, he says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Um, in chapter 12, anyone hears these words, my mind does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. So, did Jesus come to judge the world or not? Well, I think the answer is in something like Hebrews 9. Just as people are destined to die once after that, face judgment. There's your binary judgment. So Christ with sacrifice wants to take away the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. And so Jesus has two comings. The first coming, his focus was not on judgment. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He was on a rescue mission. But the second time, he will not be coming in that way. He's going to come as a judge to judge uh, everyone on earth. And it will have its eternal final consequence. And so I think this is really important that when you hear the word judgment, 
we often think of condemnation. And in some passages, that's exactly what it means. Judgment means condemnation. But th think about a normal judge. He hears a case, he or she hears a case. The first judgment that that judge is making is, is true, you know, who is innocent, who is guilty, right? I'm making a discernment um, based on the evidence. Where is someone? Do I, how do I declare them following this trial? Now those who are declared guilty now enter a second judgment of sentencing period. And in this case, it would be condemnation uh, in God's eyes. And so even when we're talking about an ultimate judgment, we're talking about two types of judgment. And so we just have to, again, lean on the context of the passage. You know, are we talking about figuring out who's guilty or are we already dealing with guilty people who now are going to be condemned? Um, and again, we'll, we'll go through this more next week, but Revelation 20 is that great white throne judgment. And even there, you will see two types of judgment. Um, judgment by the books, the plural books, and those people are in a, they're gonna be condemned. By, for specific sins, they're gonna be condemned. And yet we have these, the, another book of life that are not condemned, obviously believers. There's lots of passages that talk about God's judgment. It's not restricted to unbelievers. It's restricted to all people. And there's even specific passages where it's clearly Christians who will face judgment. Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So Christians will face a judgment. And the questions I want to leave with you to consider this week, and, and this is the challenge, I'm giving myself another week. <laughs> um, you know, if we are saved by grace, would God then judge us on our works? Well, what does Romans 2 mean by that? that we're going to face a judgment based on our works. When Paul is being so careful to talk about justification by faith, and yet he still says there's a judgment of works to happen in the end. Um, if God is for, another way of saying that is God has forgiven and forgot our sins, separated them from the east is from the west. How does he then go remember them? Why are we dealing with this in eternity? If we're already declared righteous, hidden in Christ, if sometimes we say it this way, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Well, then why is he looking at specific works, good or bad, um, that would actually affect our eternity? And then if, when we get to the issue of rewards, if, if we are sitting in heaven with different rewards, so there's a distinction now made um, uh, among believers in heaven, what does that mean for eternity? I mean, Am I going to be disappointed because I look to my left and I see my brother with more rewards than I have? Am I going to feel like, man, I missed it. I, I could have done better. Those are some questions, and they're real tough questions, that I want us to, to consider. Next week, Lord willing. All right, let me close us in prayer. Our Father, again, we love you. We thank you for your word. Help us to submit to your word. Um, Help us to dive into these deep, um, difficult things and yet not lose some of those very simple truths as well. Help us, Father, to, to be so secure in the gospel, secure in our justification in Christ, that we would invite an open uh, examination of our hearts. That you, maybe there's a sin that we have that we are protecting, that we're feeding on that is rotting inside of us. We pray that you would root it out, that you would bring it to light, 
either in our prayer time and our conscience through uh, a spouse, a family member, we pray that it would come to light so that it would not destroy us. Help us to confess our sins. Uh, if you declare us righteous and confirm in us, give us great assurance of our faith and help us not to worry about the consequences in this life. Help us not to worry about the hard path that we're on. Um, and also help us not run away from the, the, the difficult duty we have and, and what love would call for in helping our brother in sin and helping them to discern um, if they are a sheep or a wolf. Help us to do it with great patience, with great zeal and time to invest ourselves in others. Um, help us to truly love one another. Um, and may someone maybe even on this call um, who is self-deceived or is fooling others, would they know um, that they will not pull Jesus on the last day? Would you bring them to faith and repentance even now? And thank you for Tim and for those who are going to sing for us this morning and lead service. Um, thank you for their dedication. And we pray now that your spirit would be with us to worship you in spirit and truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.